We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans, and the 15th chapter of the book of Romans, and the 15th chapter this morning as we continue our study through this epistle. And I will be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 8 through 13, Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. I invite you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 8. Here Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. We ask now for the work of your Holy Spirit that he would grant us an understanding of your word this morning and help us to apply it to our own lives in such a way that you are honored and glorified and that our lives are transformed and pleasing to you. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Brethren, it is fitting as Paul brings this letter to the Romans to a close that he focuses our attention once more upon the saving mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. For everything that Paul has written in this epistle with respect to the gospel has been intended to stress the fact that Jesus is at the very center of God's saving purposes and that both Jews and Gentiles can be saved through Christ. In fact, if you'll recall back in the first chapter of this letter to the Romans, Paul stressed that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to save, to save the Jew first and also to the Greek. For this is the evidence that God's saving purposes are greater than any one nation or greater than any one people, and that Christ's saving mission was to draw all of God's elect to himself. And thus it should be no surprise to us that as Paul brings his explanation of the gospel and its implications to an end here in these final chapters of Romans, that Paul provides a brilliant summary 
of how Christ brought the truth of the gospel in unique ways to both the Jews and the Gentiles. In fact, as we'll see here in our sermon text this morning, Christ fulfilled his saving mission in a glorious way that was uniquely tailored to God's purposes for both groups. Uniquely tailored for God's purposes for both groups. And what resulted resounded loudly in praise to God. And so let's consider first the saving mission of Christ this morning as it was manifested to the Jews or to those whom Paul identifies here as the circumcised. For Paul writes here in verse 8 of our text this morning, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And of course, in presenting Christ's saving mission to the Jews in this manner, Paul reveals to us what Jesus did to manifest the truthfulness of God and to meet the Jews at the point of their greatest spiritual need. To meet the Jews at the point of their greatest spiritual need. And how did Christ manifest God's truthfulness? Well, Paul states here that Christ became a, a servant to the circumcised. A, a servant to the circumcised. Or in other words, Christ demonstrated his willingness to empty and to humble himself, according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, and to become a servant to those who were circumcised, or to those who had received the physical right of circumcision from Abraham. And, and what's significant about this declaration is that it offers proof of what Jesus was willing to do in order to show what God had declared about salvation, what God had spoken through Jesus Christ was true. For Christ as the true Lord of glory didn't need to prove anything to anyone. He didn't need to prove himself to the Jews. And yet there is a sense here that Paul states here in verse 8, where Christ embraced the humble task of proving something. Christ embraced the humble task of showing something, of showing that God's pledge to save his people was true by coming to this earth as a servant to the very people he had created by coming as a servant to those whom he had called to himself. And Christ's willingness to come, Christ's willingness to present himself as proof, as a show, as a sign of the truthfulness of God's pledge to save the Jews, shows us that Christ came and appealed to the Jews at the level of their unbelief. Or in other words, at the exact place where they had been held back by their insistence on proof before believing. You see, that was one characteristic of the Jews in our Lord's day. They, they wanted proof. They demanded proof. In fact, Paul stated elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22 that the difficulty in reaching the Jews was the fact that they demanded a sign. And yet the greatest sign 
that God gave to the Jewish people of the truthfulness of his saving purposes was the appearance of Jesus. The appearance of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, in the form of a lowly servant. For Christ's coming showed, demonstrated, the true nature of God's appeal to them. And this is amazing, that God would do this, that he would provide them with the very proof, the very sign that they demanded, although they didn't really realize the significance of of God's actions. Then not only did Christ in his saving mission show forth as proof God's truthfulness, but we also read here from Paul in verse 8 of Romans 15 that Christ came in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. To confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And this declaration from Paul speaks of the certainty of all that God has promised through Jesus Christ. This word confirmation is amazing, confirmed. It speaks of certainty. For Paul's main point here is that God keeps his promises to his people. And when Christ came to this earth, he not only affirmed, but he fulfilled what God had promised to the Jewish patriarchs of old. Christ provided yet another reason for the Jews to embrace him. And yet we know that rather than seeing Christ as the one whom Abraham longed to see, the one that the patriarchs had faith in, the Jews rejected Christ. For they did not see the promises as pointing to Christ, but they interpreted the promises incorrectly, and they claimed for themselves a privileged status before God. They said, the promises are ours but they divorced the promises from Christ. They missed the fact that Christ was confirming the certainty of God's promises merely by his being present among them. His presence was confirmation that what God had promised to the patriarchs would be fulfilled and was being fulfilled. However, Paul's primary emphasis here in our sermon text is not that the Jews were guilty of missing these signs and guilty of misinterpreting the promises which they were, but the fact that Christ came to them fulfilling his saving mission in such a way that all obstacles to receiving him were removed. Note that all obstacles to receiving him were removed and the way of salvation was made plain. Plain. And of course, there were many Jews who came to see and to embrace the saving mission of Christ, even in Paul's day, which is why Paul sets forth real hope for the Jewish people throughout this letter. In fact, you'll remember back in Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about the hope that is set forth for Israel. And here in Romans chapter 15, Paul again sets forth that hope for God has reserved a faithful remnant among the Jewish people. Not only has he reserved for himself a faithful remnant, but he's made it possible for them through confirmation, through proof, to believe the truth of the gospel by the work of the Spirit. And yet what about the Gentiles? What about the Gentiles? In what sense was Christ's saving mission from them for them, different than that of the Jews. 
Well, Paul addresses Christ's saving mission with respect to the Gentiles, beginning in verse 9 of this 15th chapter. For Paul writes that Jesus Christ came in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. They might glorify God for his mercy. And notice it's a little bit different here than that of the Jews. Beloved, there are two phrases here in this verse, verse 9, that truly set forth what is distinctive about Christ's saving mission to the Gentiles. For although Jews and Gentiles are both saved, they're, they're both justified in the same way, Paul does make use of two phrases that emphasize different aspects of God's work in the Gentiles in comparison with the Jews. And again, these are matters of emphasis. These are not matters of content, but matters of emphasis. First, Paul uses the phrase here in verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God. That the Gentiles might glorify God in reference to what Christ came in order to produce within God's elect people. And the reason that this is significant, brethren, is that in the minds of most Jews, it was hard to conceive of any Gentile glorifying God. It was hard for the Jews to even think about that idea. The Gentiles were considered unclean. The, the Gentiles were considered to be excluded from the scope and, and from the hope of God's saving purposes. And yet here in verse 9 of Romans 15, Paul reveals that Christ came, Christ accomplished his saving mission so that Gentiles, for people like you and I, could bring glory to God. Bring glory to God. And not because of anything that we could do or that we could contribute, but because of Christ's saving works alone. For it is through Christ and his atoning sacrifice on their behalf that Gentiles are made acceptable in God's sight. And so Paul first emphasizes with reference to Christ's saving mission to the Gentiles that its particular focus was to bring glory to God in a way not possible before. For whereas the Gentiles were once viewed as an affront to all that promoted God and His glory, Christ changed that. Christ changed that, for He made believing Gentiles acceptable to God, and He enabled them to glorify God where they once did not then not only were believing Gentiles now made capable of glorifying God, but they were also capable of seeing themselves properly as objects of divine mercy. Objects of divine mercy. In fact, Paul states here in verse 9 that the focus of their glorying is the mercy of God that they have received through Christ who completed His saving mission for them. For without God's great mercy, you and I as Gentiles, who were once afar off and strangers and aliens to the covenants of promise, would be permanently lost. And we would be receiving everything that we deserved by means of justice and pending wrath. And yet, because God is so merciful... And so unexpectedly and generously so. 
that we are now the recipients of God's mercy in a way that the Jews never fully experienced. Now, I didn't say that the Jews did not know about the mercy of God. They did, but they did not experience it in the same way to the same extent. They never were faced with the reality of being spiritual outcasts as the Gentiles were. They had promises and privileges that the Gentiles never possessed. But now the Gentiles, who are without those promises, without those privileges, people including you and I, are God's people through mercy that is found in Christ. And was God's provision of mercy for the Gentiles always a part of Christ's saving plan? Indeed it was. Indeed it was. It was always a part of the plan. For although this truth is often overlooked by Jews, even today there are numerous references throughout the Old Testament of God's saving intentions towards the Gentiles, towards people like you and me. And it's at this point in our sermon text this morning that, that Paul, who is very well versed in the Old Testament, as you can see, begins to marshal together a powerful series of quotations about God's future work, not among the Jews, but among the Gentiles. In fact, here in verses 9 through 12 of Romans 15, Paul quotes from several Old Testament passages. Psalm 18 and verse 49, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43, Psalm 117 and verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10, all to show that the Gentiles were always a part of God's redemptive plan in Christ, although it was not always evident at first glance how the Gentiles would be brought into the fold of God. So let's consider briefly, brethren, how each of these Old Testament quotations gives hope to the Gentiles, hope to people like you and I. Beginning in Romans chapter 15 and verse 9, which quotes from Psalm 18 and verse 49. Psalm 18 and verse 49. For here Paul writes, As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And in the context of Psalm 18, the psalmist David is speaking of how the Lord will be exalted as the God of salvation. Salvation is the context. And how God will subdue all the nations. The saving God will subdue all the nations. David declares not only for himself, but he's also speaking prophetically here for the Messiah, that he will praise God among all of those conquered people. All of those conquered peoples. And those peoples will include the Gentiles as well. For it was before the Gentiles that Jesus, it was before the Gentiles as a group that Jesus began to preach the salvation of God, even during the course of his public ministry. And these things happened just as the psalmist had written. Then secondly, Paul quotes here in Romans 15, 10, from a portion of Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43, where we find what's called the Song of Moses. And in that verse, Moses saying, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And why could Moses make a statement regarding 
the Gentiles in his day, because Moses knew that God would soon exalt himself among the nations. See a theme developing here? God exalting himself among the nations and that he would destroy his enemies and their false gods who opposed him. And in doing so, the children of Israel would not only know who the one true God is, but the Gentile nations would also know. They would see it as well. And even out of those Gentile nations, God would call a believing people for himself. In fact, in one part of Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43, that the Apostle Paul does not refer to here specifically, is God's pronouncement that those who were once his adversaries would make up his land and would make up his people, which is an amazing statement. Those who were once his adversaries would be his people, would be his land. And so even Moses saw and sang about the fact that God's saving work would be manifested among the Gentiles. Then thirdly, Paul quotes here in Romans 15, 11 from Psalm 117 in verse 1, where the psalmist calls all the nations to praise God and to extol him. And the mere fact that all the nations, including the Gentiles, are called to worship God reveals God's intention to save people well beyond the borders of Israel. God's call to believe and to worship him would be universal, would go out to all people. And did the Jews of old understand this? Uh, yes and no. They, they read these passages of Scripture. They all agreed that God deserved universal worship, right? They all agreed that all the nations should praise God, but they were unwilling. They were unable to receive the Gentiles who would hear and who by God's irresistible grace would heed the call. But Psalm 117 and verse 1 clearly points to God's plan and Christ's saving mission to create a universal church, a universal body of worshipers, which in time would be seen through the gathering of both Jew and Gentile. Then fourthly and lastly, Paul quotes here from, from Isaiah 11.10. This is in Romans 15.12, which you're reading. Quoting from Isaiah 11.10, where the prophet testified directly of Christ's saving mission to the Gentiles and how Christ alone would be their true hope. Where Isaiah wrote in that passage, Isaiah 11.10, the root of Jesse, which is, as you know, a reference to Jesus Christ, will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles remember who they are, those who were once viewed as incapable of knowing and glorifying God. In him, the Gentiles will hope. Hope. Here we can find a clearer testimony from Scripture regarding Christ's determination to bring hope to the Gentiles. Christ's determination to bring salvation to the Gentiles and to exercise his spiritual rule over them. For through Jesus Christ, the Gentiles will find hope. Through Jesus Christ, you and I who believe have found hope. 
and our hope will never be disappointed. Never be disappointed, but rather our hope only ripens over time as we look to Christ more and as we anticipate his coming. Now, having established from Holy Scripture that Christ is the true hope of Jews and Gentiles, Paul offers here in verse 13 of Romans 15 a prayer. A prayer that his readers and that you and I might experience the blessings and the benefits of these truths as they are applied through the Holy Spirit. And, and let us note here how Paul first addresses God in the beginning of this prayer. Notice this prayer again in this passage. Where Paul first addresses God as follows. May the God of peace fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And the fact that Paul addresses the Father as the God of hope is I have I, I stated here in my notes the God of peace it should be the God of hope I'm sorry the God of hope may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing and the fact that Paul addresses God the Father as the God of hope is is significant because it is Paul's recognition here that God is not only the source of all hope but that we must confess this truth by faith if we expect to receive this hope in fact, one of the older commentators wrote, it is good in our prayers to fasten on or to attach to our prayers the names, the titles, the attributes of God which are most suitable to our needs and that best serve to encourage our faith. Thus our prayers must skillfully be ordered and our mouths must be filled with scriptural arguments. That's the kind of prayer that Paul is giving us here. The kind of prayer that Paul offered and the kind of prayer that we should offer as well. Then let us notice here as well that Paul asked God to do something. He asked God to fill his people with, with spiritual blessings. And I love this part. To fill his people with spiritual blessings. And, and this too is significant to consider because it reveals that it is not by our faith it is not by our feats of spiritual strength that the fullness of God's blessings come to us, but rather they come to us by the operation of the Spirit, by the Spirit. He's asking the Spirit to fill us. It's the Spirit that produces what we must be filled with. And what does Paul request that his readers, what does Paul request that you and I be filled with? Notice two things all joy and peace in believing all joy and peace in believing and why these two things well no doubt one reason paul requests these two things is that both of them joy and peace are clear evidences of true justifying faith Joy and peace are true evidences of true justifying faith. For being joyful is an evidence that one's transgressions have been forgiven, right? For when we've been forgiven, when our sins have been taken from us, there is great joy that fills our hearts. Being at peace with God is evidence that God has blessed us with a faith that justifies as well. In fact, Paul wrote back in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, 
Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so clearly, Paul requests that we would enjoy the two chief blessings that flow from God through justification, joy and peace. Then secondly, it's possible that Paul requests that we might be filled with all joy. Notice that all joy, not just some joy, all joy, all joy and peace, because these two blessings contribute to our spiritual unity and harmony together as one body, one body made up of, of both Jew and Gentile. For you'll recall that throughout the previous chapter, Romans chapter 14, Paul pleaded for greater concern and sensitivity to one another throughout the body. For when joy and peace are evident and functioning within a congregation, there is a greater likelihood that there will be unity and harmony within that body. In fact, I won't turn there now, but Psalm 133 speaks of the blessings of unity. And those blessings include the evidence of joy and peace. So Paul wanted these believers to be characterized by a spiritual joy and peace that not only testified to the fact that God provided it, but of the effects that came with it, the effects that came with it, because these blessings needed to be seen. These blessings needed to be experienced, and we need to see these blessings and experience them here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church as well. And yet, how were these believers to experience these blessings? We, we talked about the Holy Spirit being the one who produces them. How were they to experience them? Well, well not through some effort to force joy and peace, we can't force true spiritual joy and peace to be present. But Paul states here in verse 13, in believing, in believing, they come through and in believing. For it is in believing in Christ, who is the true hope of the Gentiles and the true hope of the Jews, that these blessings are obtained and enjoyed. For God does not grant or extend these blessings in response to human efforts or in response to human energy, but in response to that faith that the Spirit produces. And of course, that's what Paul is appealing to here in verse 15, where he uses this expression. Notice the expression, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul knows where these blessings come from, and he appeals to God by the power of the Holy Spirit to grant them, to create within them, and to sustain within them true joy and peace. And in what way could the Spirit sustain these blessings in the lives of these believers in Rome? Well, Paul states here at the end of verse 13 of Romans 15, by causing them to abound in hope. To abound in hope. For what they needed, what Paul was praying specifically for here, was, was not a temporary or a casual hope, but a hope that abounded, a hope that overflowed, a hope that endured. And of course, the only kind of hope that truly meets that description is that hope 
that is provided through the Holy Spirit. The only kind of hope that is not only able to survive, but to thrive under adversity is that hope that comes through faith, through believing, through trusting, through relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That hope, hope in Christ, is a hope that is firmly fixed and will not be moved. Is this the kind of hope that the Spirit has produced in you this morning? I trust that it is. For God has called us today to a greater hope than this world can supply. And we all know that this world is incapable of giving us any kind of hope. Those who live in the world are characterized by their hopelessness. That's what's wrong in our culture today. If you think about it, it's utter hopelessness. There is no hope that this world can provide, but God does provide this abounding, abundant hope through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it only comes in believing, in believing. With respect to our response by the grace of God, it only comes in believing, in relying upon him, in trusting in him alone. For Christ alone is the true hope of the Jew and the true hope of the Gentile. And I pray that God would force us by his spirit today to come to grips with that truth and give us the grace to receive it, to trust in Christ, to believe in Christ for this abounding hope if we don't already have it. And if we do have it, to grow even more in it and to be even more confident of it. May Jesus Christ, who is the true hope of the Jews and the Gentiles, receive all the glory this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for these words from the Apostle Paul. And as Paul is coming to a close in this epistle, Lord, it's only appropriate that he looked to the saving mission of Jesus Christ. And it's appropriate that we consider it again this morning for all that we've been talking about throughout this epistle is related to Christ's saving mission. And the fact that Christ came here to meet the unique needs of those whom he was calling to himself. To the Jews, he offered proof. He offered confirmation. To the Gentiles, of which we count ourselves among he gave the opportunity to give glory to God and the opportunity to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are the recipients and the objects of divine mercy. Father, help us not to forget these truths this morning. Help us to think about them very carefully and apply them to our own circumstances and our own lives that we might be used to bring glory to you. And Father, we ask this morning that if there's anyone here today who is not a Christian, who is not a believer, who has never placed their faith, that God-given faith that the Spirit produces in Jesus Christ for salvation today, that you will enable them to do so, that you will open their eyes to their spiritual need, that you would grant them an understanding of how desperate that need is and how they need Jesus Christ to be saved from hell. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would then give them the will through the work of your spirit to trust in Christ, to cry out to Christ, to rely upon Jesus Christ alone today for their salvation. Grant that request, we pray. 
to any who may be unsaved among us today. And Father, may you simply glorify yourself in your church today by granting us these spiritual blessings that we've been talking about, all joy and peace. May we be a joyful, peaceful congregation. May we know this abiding hope that you give to your people. And may it be rich and evident in our lives. May we be greatly encouraged and refreshed by it.